Hello, hello. Welcome to the podcast. This is your old buddy, CH, and I have with me Jen Donahoe. Hi, Jen. Howdy, everyone. So, Jen, could you tell folks a little bit about your background? Oh, boy, where to start? So you may know me from being a co-host on the Deconstructor of Fun podcast, which is so much fun. I've been able to do that the last couple of months, but I've actually been in the games, toys, and entertainment space for well over 20 years. I think I'd set 25 now. I, I can't even believe I'm going to say that. Half my career was in the toy industry at Hasbro, Mattel, and we actually overlapped at Disney together. There's a lot of fun to talk about there. And then I transitioned over to the games industry where I was at EA, Zynga, Scopely, Riot, a startup called High Def most recently. And now I'm actually taking the jump into the fractional space, which is marketer's new way of saying consulting. So I'm a fractional marketing executive or CMO or CRO or whatever you want to call those things. And so I am trying my hand at the consulting thing with Jade Inferno Consulting, which is I'm such a nerd. It's my gamer tag and an anagram of my name and I could own it. So that's why it's Jade Inferno Consulting. I love it. I love the name. I was going to ask when you sent me your email, I was like, ooh, what's Jade Inferno? That sounds cool. Yeah, I'm going to admit how nerdy I am. We were sitting around and we wanted like a name for our group chat. And so we went on an anagram name generator and you just pop your name in and literally like spits all this stuff out and a few letters here and there. And I was like, Ooh, Jade Inferno, that's my new gamer tag. And so I've just kept it. It's like my identity. It's my discord name. It's everything. And so I just said, why not just make this the LLC name? And so for those who are consulting, like having an LLC, if you're US-based, obviously, it's just an added protection. And yeah, I did that. Plus everything else I wanted to name a consulting company was already taken. Like Ignite, business ideas, like Ignition, even in like things around Fire or Inferno or those types of things are all taken. Sucks. So I did Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow, which is a reference to Carousel Progress and one of the Sherman Brothers songs. And Disney does not own it. There you go. Isn't All right. Wild? That is crazy. I so I say. filed the trademark. I own the trademark to Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow. There you go. Yeah, They're going to come cool. calling one day when they figure that out. I lost touch with you when you went into games, which is funny because I've been in the games industry for over a decade now, and we only recently reconnected. I'd love to talk a little bit about your transition from toys to games and how you got into the game space. Yeah. So growing up, I loved video games. My first games were on the Apple II Plus. Wizardry is like my favorite game of all time when I was a wee little pup. And it was a way for my brother and I to connect, actually. Like we played games together. So when I was thinking of what do I want to be when I grow up, it was always I want to do toys because we actually collected Star Wars toys together. It was another way for us to bond and connect. He's nine years younger than I was. So that was a way for us to connect. And so I wanted to do toys, video games, comic books, or sports. I'm a goalie. I'm from Dallas. I'm a Cowboys fan. They hand you a football when you're born. I've always loved sports as well. I didn't um, know you were a Texan. Yes. Oh, I saw you went to UT and I was, yeah. I didn't go to UT. I went to WashU, Washington University. I'm, a, in I'm from around Houston. Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm Plano, suburb of okay. Dallas. Yeah. For, for those who are listening, my mom still lives there. And so I go back. And realize now what 112 degrees feels like when you live in Los Angeles at the beach. Yeah, totally. It is like going to the desert and having a hairdryer like blowing in your face 24 hours a day. I don't know how people do it anymore. It's crazy. 
So let's see. So I just happened to land in the toy industry first, even though like personally, I have a love of games my whole career. And I think when you're in toys, there's a certain transition. And so I, I was transitioning out in the late, like 2006, 2007, the age of kids playing toys was getting younger and younger. Video games were getting more and more popular. I'm like, I don't know, maybe I should finally make the jump into the toy, into the video game industry, which is incredibly hard to break into. I looked for a long time. And the only reason I got in was through a connection. I knew somebody who introduced me to Chip Lang, who was at EA. EA had done the deal with Hasbro to make all of the Hasbro games. And I only got in because I luckily had come from the toy industry. I knew kids and family marketing. And so this is why for me personally, I don't know how you feel, like helping the next generation of folks, especially diverse folks, break into the games industry is a little bit of a passion of mine because yeah. of how hard it was to break into our very insular community that we have. Yeah. One of the episodes that I did two episodes ago was with a guy that runs the games program at our local high school and all my kids were in it. And we were talking about how important it is to get kids excited about the games industry and thinking about the games industry in high school before they decide where they're going to go to college and what career path they're on. Once people go to college, they've already decided what career path they're on, what major they're going to take. So that already determines your pool if you're only going to recruit from colleges. So if you really want to make an impact on diversity, I think you have to go upstream of college and impact the high schools. And I don't think anyone in, in the games industry is really thinking that way. Yeah. Uh, so first of all, I agree 100%. That's why programs like Girls Who Code, who get to, yeah. in this example, it's they get to girls and they get to girls in high school. I think they start as young as 10, 11, 12. At Riot, we would have the girls who code come on campus for some of their sessions and we would all stop by and cheer them on. And it was just the cutest thing ever because you have to start young. When I was young, I had no idea you could do any of the jobs that are out there now. Like no idea. Oh, I oh, even was a kid who went to college. I went in, I went in undeclared. I didn't know what the hell I wanted to do. I was playing soccer as a way to pay for school. And I was like, let me just see what happens. Luckily, I met a bunch of people who were in undergraduate business school. Uh, WashU has an undergraduate program. And so I actually ended up getting a marketing undergraduate degree because I was like, this is the thing that's going to get me a job. <laughs> like English isn't going to get me a job or psychology is my other major. It's not going to get me a job. That's what I figured out in school. But I agree with you. I actually guest lecture at USC and some other places where I go in and now they have communications programs that target video games. They have video game schools for design and there's one of those at USC. So there's yeah, so many more. Oh, he's in that program? Oh, that's so good. Okay, that's super cool. I just joined as a, they have this thing called the CAP program at USC, which is like a mentorship yep. program through Marshall School of Business. Yep. And so I'll, even though I didn't go there, I volunteered and I'm like, I, I will only take diverse people though. So I have two women and I'm going to be a first time mentor starting like right away. And actually the irony too, is there's three or four rioters who are in the program. So it was a little mini reunion that we had because we just oh, wow. kicked off like this week. So I'm excited to be a Yoda. It'll be fun. You'll be a great Yoda. <laughs> so while we're talking toys that we've talked a couple of times online about the incredible marketing around the Barbie movie. Yes. Uh, and you shared with me yesterday that, that you hate Barbie. Yes. Yes. Do you want to yes. yeah, share how you feel about Barbie? 
Yes. Let me let me start from the beginning because I think it's important to have context behind such a bold statement. Growing up, I was a tomboy and I think I'm very out. I ended I didn't know I was gay at the time, but later on <laughs> I look back and I'm like, oh, isn't that obvious? But growing up, I loved to play with action figures. I was the only girl on the block. So there were actually were no other girls for me to interact with. I never ever had a Barbie. And then when I started to meet other little girls and play with them, I would see Barbie and I didn't identify with that. I didn't identify with doll play. I didn't identify with fashion play. I had zero interest in that. And I was, uh, I felt very outcast because I wasn't. And so the other girls thought I was weird that I didn't have any Barbies and I didn't know how to play with them. And so when you grow up feeling like an outsider and that toy and that brand caused you to feel that way, I just have not identified with the brand and kind of hated it for a very long time. I hate pink. I don't want to wear pink. I don't want to be gendered as uh, a female by wearing pink. And I thought that the brand earlier on, this is a very long, this is 40 years ago, right? It's a very long time ago, Is it? but that brand made me feel that way. And so for many years, even up until working at Mattel, so everybody, I worked at Mattel and I led action figures design and marketing, ironically. So again, an outsider group within Mattel, which is like all about Barbie and stereotypes are stereotypes for a reason. And even the women working on the brand, I'll be careful how I say this, could be a little bit mean girl. Again, I I am not a stereotypical woman. I am tomboyish even as an adult. And so there were elements of the brand that carried forward into the people that worked on it. And so again, I felt like an outsider, I felt different. What I will say is I really do respect what they started to do with the brand around 10 years ago. And around 10 years ago, they started to recognize these problems, right? Because kids like me were growing up, having kids and realizing that there were some negative consequences of how the brand is presented over time, right? The gendered expectations, the false body image, the focus on fashion and materialistic things, the commercialism, all of that is now playing into how parents are deciding what their little girls are going to play with. Sales were dropping. And credit to the brand for saying, listen, Barbie has had 200 careers over the life of the product. In 1969, her very first career was a fashion designer. Barbie has had 200 careers from, and that's where the movie gets a lot of it, is showing that little girls can be anything. And the brand really focused in on, okay, here is how you, little girl, can be anything you want. We really want to push into aspiration and role play and let you know that you can do whatever you want to do. And they started to do a lot of really excellent marketing. There was this one video that's super cute where they had little girls show up as a teacher or a soccer coach to adult men. And so those campaigns were really awesome and reinvigorating it, lending to you know where we're ending up today. So when I say I hate Barbie, hopefully that context helps everyone. Yeah, no, it sense. makes total sense. It makes total <laughs> sense. Yeah, it's interesting. I had a debate with someone on LinkedIn about Barbie because there's another guy. So it's, it's <laughs> easier debate. But he was pointing out the perceived negatives of Barbie. And I said, that's spoken like someone who doesn't know the history of Barbie. And then he said, you're right. I don't know the history of Barbie. And, and so to refresh myself, I actually looked it up and did some research. And the movie covers this a little bit, but the whole idea of a fashion doll and the girl being the doll, not the not a yes. piece, was was a controversial idea. The idea that Ruth Handler, probably the most famous female toy inventor of all time, 
was able to get this doll made and produce, let alone a massive success, what, 50 years or more later. Um, there, there were a lot of things about Barbie that were really groundbreaking. And, and it's interesting if you track the history of feminism and the history of Barbie, how they, how they interact a lot, how Barbie is a lot of things that from a feminist perspective today get criticized about Barbie are things that were considered positive attributes of like second wave feminism. So there's a lot of like interaction between different, even schools mm -hmm. of, of thought there. But if you look at the history of the careers that Barbie mm -hmm. has had over the years, and fashion doll was what was allowed mm -hmm. in the 50s when Ruth created the doll. And then over the years, she's done everything, right? It, she really has. And like I said, I actually think what they have done the last 10 years has been remarkable. And it, I equated a little bit to Madonna. Madonna is a music icon who has found a way to evolve herself right. to be relevant with the times of times has completely changed. You, right. you think about how she started off in the eighties with her style and, and everything. That, and every single five years to a decade, she is doing something else to stay relevant. Yeah. And I think there was a period of time where the Barbie brand didn't do that, where there was a fear of being able to evolve and do things. I actually think it was amazing that they gave what might've felt to you like a throwaway line in the movie that oh. they said, we've only had one, okay, maybe two female CEOs. I don't think any other movie would have taken the time to actually say that, to give Jill Berard that nod oh. of having that time when the, the movie is actually in this fantastical place. It doesn't take place in Century City, as we know, Will Ferrell is not, and it's not a cast of male executives running the company. It is a diverse mm -hmm. cast. Most of the people running uh, the toy division and the licensing division and the creative division, they're all women. Mm -hmm. uh, and they are, and by the way, they are badass women. I, having worked with many of them who have been there for many years, they are badass women. And a lot of that was dramatized for the movie. But when you think about how they have lacked the ability to stay in touch until recently, right? Until recently, now they've been able to like stay in touch with what's going on so much so that they handed the keys to Greta Gerwig. Did I say that right? Hopefully I said Greta's name right. And said, you know what? We are going to be hands off. We're going to indoctrinate you and Margot Robbie. Margot Robbie's actually a producer on the movie. Mm -hmm. We are going to share with you Barbie's history and here is all the great things and we're going to let you take this and run with it. Obviously they gave notes, right? They gave notes, but this is the magic. And this is like the true takeaway for transmedia and, and how you can get your brand to win is let the creatives who have the creative expertise in their category, take your brand and run with it. Give them guardrails. Hey, Barbie can't twerk. Barbie can't curse. Although Barbie cursed, that was pretty funny. I loved it in the movie. And give them some guardrails and then let that creator who has a specialty in that field go. That's why Last of Us was so amazing, right? The mm -hmm. Chernobyl director was a fan of the game mm -hmm. and it obviously had created great TV shows, made Last of Us what it was. The mm -hmm. Mario movie, right? You, you finally started to hand over and recognize the, the power of these, the creative discipline in a certain, it is very different to make a video game and a movie than a TV show than a comic book. It's a completely different skill set, and I wish people would realize that. One of the big topics we we want to talk about is marketing, which is you know, a big expertise of yours. Barbie is really nothing other than marketing, right? Other than that, it's a piece of plastic. So it's really what they say it is, right? It's the messaging around it. And 
I think that it seemed to me that Gerwig was pretty aware of people who have points of view like yours and the mixed feelings that people may have about Barbie. And it seems like she had mixed feelings about Barbie too. And the movie grapples with all that, which for me, I felt like it was what it needed to be. It, It had to answer some existential questions about Barbie and it did that. I don't know how did you saw the movie last night i bullied you into it what (laughs) did you like the movie i did it's so funny because i had been putting off seeing it not because i didn't want to see it but because my wife is grossed out by movie theaters and i didn't have anyone to go and so i bullied her into going with me and she also worked at mattel and so we had a really fun discussion about it afterwards what was also interesting is All of the last couple of weeks since the movie has been out, a lot of my friends have been contacting me saying, hey, I just saw the Barbie movie and I thought of you. And note that that is cognitive dissonance for me. Like how on earth are you equating me with the Barbie movie? And I think it goes to this movie tagline, which is if you love Barbie, if you hate Barbie, this movie is for you. And I was, I was so baffled. And so I'm like, I have to see this because what on earth could they think that? Why would it remind them? of me. And then I see the movie, number one, it's super creative. The visual identity of it is it, just presented in such a creative way. The acting is really amazing. The story points and the message are really powerful for women. I could see any woman going to this being like girl power coming out of this. The empowerment themes, what are all our challenges? How have we been treated? Like all of these things are really important messages. So I, I came away feeling very good about what this movie said and did in a really unique way. And I also love media that's just really unique and not cookie cutter, which I feel like this did. I think I realized what people were pointing to when they said, if this reminds me of you, is like the daughter. So sorry, everybody, I'm going to spoil the movie, but I'll give you some, it's not that spoilery, but there's a young girl, she's 12 and she meets Barbie for the first time and doesn't know that she's Barbie and basically goes off on her and is, I hate you. You're awful. You're the embodiment of commercialism. Basically offers all of the negative rants that we have just talked about back to her. And I was like, ooh, I wonder if they think I'm that 12-year-old little girl dressed in all black. Um, So a couple things I didn't like is that same little girl who basically comes across as hating Barbie. At the end of the movie, she's in a a pink dress in Barbie land. And I was like, oh, I don't love that. I think the girl can come around, but why do you got to put her in a pink dress? Mm. Please don't push people to be what, you know, what they're not. So I felt like there was a little bit of that going on, which is we've all converted to love Barbie and all of us are going to be wearing beautiful colors and dresses and all this stuff. And that was one thing I didn't like. The ending was a little interesting. The joke at the end is wonderful. I won't spoil that, but my wife didn't like that. She hated the roof handler stuff. So she hated the Ruth Handler stuff. Yeah, at the very end. Yeah, at the very end, she's like, why don't we just leave it as they say, they going into a lot of spoilers, everybody. Hopefully you've seen it. But she's like, why didn't they just end it at, at they've saved Barbie land? And, and that's great. Like, why do they have to go into Barbie wants to be a real person and, and have that existential moment meeting her creator and her creator saying, I think it was the point about you can be anything. And going back to that as it's a core tenant of the brand, the aspirational play, that is how they market it, right? And that's what childhood role play is all about, is the 
ability to put yourself into someone else's shoes to, to be something that you're not imagine that so that you can eventually go and become that. So I took that as the ending of the movie, but it, it felt a little clunky. I don't know. What did you think about it? I, I thought the third act was very clunky. I liked the movie like you. It's obviously, obviously I'm a dude. And as much as I love sitting for two hours, hearing about the patriarchy and <laughs> <laughs> I always liked, you were always on the boys toys side. Yes. And I would say I was probably mostly on the girls' toy side. So I I, I liked making fashion dolls. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. I mean, look, I worked with Lane Caravia and mm-hmm. Natasha Burling, who are <gasps> two of the best to ever do it. Right? Ever. Yeah. It wasn't on Lynn Mazzacco, who was an honorary girl, at least, and has worn enough dresses to... Yeah, I, I often say he is probably one of the core brainchilds to Disney princesses, which is a whole other podcast we could do. The origin of Disney princess came out of our Disney toy team. Yeah. And there are lots of other people out in the world taking credit for that. And I'm like, it started from the Disney toy team who needed to increase toy revenue and recognize that it was challenging that all of the princesses couldn't be brought together to play together. And so we went and pitched two executives and the brand team, hey, we want to do, look, here's Disney princess art. All of them are together. And the brand team was like, ooh, they can't cross over into each other's world. So if you're going to do a package, you have to put a circle around each one of them so that they can't actually touch because girls freak out if they're in each other's worlds. And we're looking at them, we're like, did you not have Barbie and G.I. Joe make out when you were a little kid? That those are two different companies. The princesses still can't look each other in the eye, right? <gasps> they can't? No, that's the rule. It's for the same, that's that was the compromise yeah. that came so out. So they of got it, rid uh, of the of the like the picture circles. frame around them, right? But they were yeah, like yeah. never look each other in the eye because they're not in the same world together. But then that rule got broken in Wreck It Ralph 2. Yeah. Where they right? had but that was okay because they were in a video game. So it's whatever. It's arbitrary <sighs> i think it was john Lasseter at the time that insisted they be able to do that and then five minutes before that he was getting people fired for having princesses look in the eyes but yeah i was i was very involved on the we grew princess a lot when i was there and so i was very involved in the girls toys and have always had a love-hate relationship with barbie just because we were always <laughs> competitor were barbie, right? We were always saying to Mattel, why don't you give us this that you do? Why does Barbie get this? Why does Barbie get that? Barbie gets everything. What about the princesses? But I really liked the movie. I thought the third act was clunky just because I just felt like there wasn't a lot of resolution. It was like, if Barbie, if the real world is so awful, why does Barbie want to go there? What really happened in the real world that makes her want to go back? How did the mom and daughter reconcile their relationship? Yeah, uh, we, we talked a lot about that, right? If the whole movie was predicated, the journey is predicated on their relationship, there wasn't a lot of resolution to that. And I thought that would have been a really interesting way to tie that back together of relationships, right? Because then it bounced back to Barbie and what does she really want? But we didn't know enough about her motivations to follow along her decision-making. I feel like that's all film criticism, but... As a whole, I was kind of like you. I I always root for anyone that can get anything ambitious through any kind of big corporate uh, entity. And the fact that Greta Gerwig wrote this 
unabashedly feminist movie and Mattel was like, yeah, go for it. I think that's pretty cool that, that I, everyone I did, yeah. gets to hold hands on that script because you could easily see how that movie could have been done down and turned into a oh. toy commercial. Yeah, it, it's actually not appropriate for kids. I think I think there are people who make recommendations on whether kids should see our movie or not. And we talked about this on the Deconstructor of Fun podcast. Ethan has a seven-year-old daughter and he looked it up and he's, I'm not taking my daughter to the movie, they're not recommending that it's age appropriate for her. And so it's interesting. And we talked about this. It's not a kid's movie. Everyone going to see it is teen to all the way up to Gen X. And so that was a gamble that they took, which is let's reframe the zeitgeist around this brand targeting an older women who are going to be or have kids so that they will have an affinity again for the brand and feel like it's okay to, to drive long-term toy sales. Because right now, by the way, Mattel's Barbie, the Barbie brand is down this year. And everyone's what? How is the Barbie brand down yeah. this year? I'm like, yeah. the movie, like you are not going to see the impact on this until Q4. I think Christmas, you will absolutely see that halo effect take place, right? A lot of moms are going to go be like, I want to bring a, the Barbie's going to bring us together like the mother and daughter in the film. So they're betting on that long-term zeitgeist play. And that's the marketing brilliance of it. And not the short term, let's just do a kid targeted hype movie for a pop and drop in the summer, which is smart, right? Yeah. And, and on the CEO of Mattel, he's a content guy. He's actually not a toy guy. He's not necessarily, he's, he used to work at Disney Maker Makers that was bought by Disney. And Fox Kids. He yes. It's at Disney. Yeah. So he gets the power of content in the brand marketing sphere. And this is why. Like on the pod when Phil and Mishka are like, oh, transmedia sucks. And where's the attribution to the sales? And I'm like, guys, you trying to explain brand marketing to people who are allergic to marketing is very difficult, right? Because it, it's a feeling. And there are no formulas to measure and showcase brand equity, brand loyalty, but you see it, right? Nike and all of these other brands that we all know and love, they don't exist without the power of that brand. Uh, so what, and, so and what so, was their what was their point that all the marketing that Mattel and Warner Brothers did didn't deliver that as the biggest movie of the year? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I just you'll hear me. They keep it in. I'm like, oh, you're killing me. And we don't. And they usually do this with three minutes left in the episode where I can't go on my rant about <laughs> why what they're saying is stupid. And and we keep putting a pin in it, but one day I'm going to have to, and maybe I bring you in to help me a little bit on this is I need to amass like an army of marketers or, okay. or marketing friendly people and be like, let's argue, let's go, let's have a debate club, the power of marketing, the power of transmedia too. And they were like, Oh, the Witcher didn't drive any Witcher sales. I'm like, the Witcher has now yes, been in did. the zeitgeist for the last three years because of the Netflix show. And Maybe, yes, on the day it launched, the numbers didn't grow that day. You have to zoom out and think about their next project is probably going to get green lit and have awareness and affinity. The next version of it, you can't always just zoom into that one little thing well, at that one I, moment you, in time. Yeah. Brand marketing, it's not as attributable as those guys want it to be. Like it's they want to yeah. be able to say, I bought this thing. And it gave me 45% this and that. And to your point about the Barbie movie, I mean, what we used to see with movie releases 
was that they really didn't drive toy sales until the in-home release or what we used to call the mm-hmm. release. And that's yeah. they would really get in the hands of kids and they would get watched over and over again. A lot of those D- Disney movies, even a lot of the box office of those movies is not necessarily kids. It's like date night and stuff like that. And it's not until the movie gets into homes that a lot of kids see it. And it's not just seeing it once, but it's the repeat play again and again. My guess is what happens with this Barbie movie is it gets into homes towards the end of the year and girls are just watching it because they love it. And a lot of the kind of more adult themes just are over their heads and it gets watched a billion times and you do see that Barbie bump, but it takes a while to get there because movies are expensive and you have to get in a car and you have to drive to them. And how many times are you going to take your kid to see the Barbie movie right now, if at all? Yeah, there, there's push and pull in yeah. toy sales. And so, you know, I've been doing this for a year. I, I, in my six, seven years at Disney and then all of my from Star Wars to God, every Toy Story to all of these movies and Batman, even when I was Mattel, I did all of the Batman, Justice League, all all those different things. And when you analyze all these things, there's a push and a pull effect. So the the push effect is what you're going to see with Barbie right now, which Mm -hmm. is parents pushing Barbie on their little girls because they now have this brand affinity back right? Oh my, you can see moms crying. I forgot. Barbie is so amazing. Barbie, you can be anything like these new brand values are now instilled in an audience. Brilliant, fucking brilliant. Because now mom and decision makers who are the ones that spend the money push down. So you're right. Once streaming comes out and and we all know kids will watch it 10 freaking times. Once that happens, then you have the pull effect, which is Kids going to mom saying, I want, here's my Christmas list. What do you want for your birthday? What do you want for the holiday season? And so they multiply exponentially with each other, both of those factors happening. Many times when you've got the Jurassic Worlds and you worked on Jurassic, I did too. When you have all of those movies, which by the way, those are all PG-13 movies. We forget that most of the kids only know and buy those movies because of the TV commercials they're not allowed to even see the movie dinosaurs are for three-year-olds and here i am making jurassic world jurassic park i've worked on all of the jurassic park movies at both companies and the, our commercials were the content to to drive sales because they're not seeing the movie until like you said the dvd release or streaming or later on because they're actually too old for the little kids to do so that is also a little bit of push effect oh you're you love superheroes and the kids don't even know the storyline of the movie half the time. That's but why they always um, aspire country. older, right? Always. Yeah. yeah. And so many people don't understand aspirational play. I actually wrote a little bit of a LinkedIn piece on this too, is somebody asked me in the Slack, they were like, Hey, why isn't Barbie in more like male oriented video games? Like, why is she only in a few different things? And I'm like, listen, it's very simple. Gendered behavior is real and I hate it, but it's a thing. Yeah. So girls will be very open to boy and girl oriented themes and play patterns. Like there's some of them are tomboyish or I'll go see Avengers or isn't that great? Boys on the whole, stereotypically will never, ever be into girl oriented. They won't buy things and they won't play with things unless it's like in the closet, so to speak. And actually some people on my post like outed themselves and said, yeah, I was that kid. I was the only boy on the block. And so if I didn't, I had to play with my sister and I played Barbies, but I didn't tell any of my dude friends I was doing that. And for sure, I would never buy it. 
Why a Barbie? Ethan said his son ends up watching the Barbie show only because his seven-year-old daughter is dominant and he's the younger brother, right? These are the dynamics that we have that I really hope movies like this can highlight to parents so that they change a little bit. But it is a intrinsic thing that boys will gravitate away from girl-oriented um, thing. You found this, right? And all your toy history. Isn't it sad? It's so well, it's, sad. It, it's two things that interact. One is it's developmental, right? So the way boys' brains develop, the way girls' brains develop when they're young, and the things that they're attracted to. Boys like explosions and yep. you know, very action-oriented kind of stuff. Girls are much more into relationship play. Boys, mm -hmm. if you give them two dolls, they'll hit them together. Oh, yeah. If you give them to girls, they'll have tea parties and tell stories. And that... I don't think is we both sat in enough kind of play tests with kids plus having my own kids. I don't, I don't think all of that is like societal or cultural. There's definitely there's, a yeah, DNA. Component. Yeah, yeah. DNA and just, but there's also the cultural. And after you had left, I had a, when I was the GM of the toy team, I had a, the guy who is the John Paul Dyson, who is the curator of the strong uh, national toy museum in, mm -hmm. uh, in Rochester. And he came in and gave a whole history of toys once. Mm. And he was talking about, obviously baby dolls are a big part of that. And we were talking about gendered versus non-gendered, the kind of pendulum that, that swings. And he had brought up that it was a pendulum that uh, like in the 1970s, you get, you get Sesame street and Mr. Rogers and these types of things. And very, gendered play was, yeah. was frowned upon and so all of the push was for kind of non-gender specific type toys things like the bucket of legos things like that mm -hmm. come from that era when i was running disney toys we were at the apex of pink pretty prin princesses we couldn't yeah. afford more wands and and dresses and teacups and all that stuff then the last decade things have gone in the exact opposite direction I saw yesterday that the new fashion trend coming out of Paris is towards hyper femininity, which I think uh, kind of towards pinks. So I, I regret to inform you. I know. Yeah. The Barbie marketing kicked it all off. So the marketing was brilliant if you didn't follow the marketing. And, yeah. and one of the articles I read, and sorry, I I'm totally interrupting your story. So they didn't know that they had lightning in the bottle until they started their tease campaign. So they started filming. And as if you've seen the movie again, like they're out in Venice Beach in their crazy day glow outfits. And then Will Smith is on his rollerblades. And so people in the cowboy outfit, right? And so they started to post this on social media and people were going just apeshit in a good way for them. And so that's when they started to realize, oh, they might have a cultural phenomenon and then fashion, who can actually fast follow pretty quickly now, started to see those pinks and what they was, was showing up from the movie and started to integrate that into what was happening. And so many of companies that are doing things, they're not even licensed. Some of them are, I think Zara is licensed and I think a few of them are. And, and the right, and who licenses what and who is making money on this is very interesting, right? Because Mattel owns obviously all the toy rights, but I think they have own a lot of the license or relationship rights because they yes. have consumer products. Yes. So typically, even though Warner typically also has consumer products, which I worked with when I did toys and video games, they're only the 
they're only activating on the theatrical standpoint. So I think that they don't have any rights to any consumer product categories. They only have movie rights. And so a lot of the promotional partnerships. So if you got the Jeep, like Ken's Jeep in the movie or Barbie's Corvette, I'm sure that kind of went through a little bit of the movie because that was a movie promotional partnership that they have to do. And so it's funny how even on a deconstructor of fun, a lot of people don't understand how a lot of these licensing relationships work and who is actually the party that's making money. So people were like, how much do you think Mattel is making on the movie? And I'm like, Ooh, that's an interesting, I don't know exactly what that deal looks like, but because that's why you have a partner who engages in funding the movie and spending the marketing. I don't know. What do you think? Like 30% off of that's receipts? Right. I yeah, th- I that's think, my I mean, ballpark. My guess is they get back in on the film. I don't know if they invested any money in the production or not, or if it was all Warner. I didn't think that Warner had any of the licensing rights, but if they do, which is not uncommon, there's probably some kind of rev share agreement in the studio and back to Mattel and maybe vice versa. There there may be a rev share from some of the Mattel consumer products to Warner. That sometimes happens too, cross licensing. That's the secret, I think, to why they were able to get so much support from consumer products and collabs and all this other stuff is because you had studio marketing, yep. which does a ton of these types of promotional deals. And those are usually just for free, right? There's no dollar exchange, but a lot of those are just you commit, instead of commit, committing yeah. a minimum guarantee, you commit to spend a certain amount in marketing or to do certain act- activations. So there's the promotional activation, there's consumer products, mm-hmm. which Pam Lifford, who we used to work with is yeah. a Warner and she's one of the best at, uh, especially the fashion and apparel and the soft goods. She has soft goods, the, yeah. the best teams for that. And so if they were involved, that explains a lot. Then you've got the Mar- uh, the, the Mattel consumer products team. Uh-huh. Then you've got the Barbie team, which is one of the best marketing teams in the world. And then how can I forget studio marketing at Warner, which is Josh Goldstein, who I worked with at Universal, who's a genius. You really had two great marketing companies, Warner and Mattel, activating everything to create this surround sound effect. You're not going to do that for every movie, obviously, like it would burn audiences out if every movie had that same level of surround sound. But I do think the, the big message for marketers, especially movie marketers, is how much of what Mattel and Warner did here was really earned media. It activations like, I mean, how much marketing value did they get out of that standee that they dropped into theaters that looked like a Barbie box that you could go stand on and posted photos of that on all the social media platforms. And yeah. you see it again and again, whoever came up with Barbie Heimer, maybe the internet came up with it, but <laughs> Certainly they jumped on the back of it and made it huge. It just, the, you're yeah. talking about two virtuoso level yeah. marketing teams at the top of their game. It, it really was the perfect storm because none of that would have taken off had not the early buzz of the movie been incredible. And Hathaway left. The other actress, uh, I'm forgetting her name, left. They talk about it took two years to woo Mar- Margot Robbie to take it on. And then I think Margot came on first and then Greta Gerwig came on. 
And Greta Gerwig has this pedigree, right? Of, oh, that's an interesting choice. So this isn't going to be typical. And then when people started to see what was coming out and the reviews and the buzz was like, holy shit, everybody, you have to see this movie. That's when they really probably dialed it up. And, and listen, they have all this down to a science, right? They have all of their charts showing expected revenue by weekend. This is a formula in, in the world of motion pictures. So they once they knew it was trending that way, then they really poured fuel on the fire. And then everyone was getting in, right? There's the mansion in Malibu that you could Airbnb. There's all of these different things. And I, my article was about Forza and how Forza was like, we'll take that Barbie Corvette and that 10 Jeep and put it in there. And I was like, good on you. Even though my whole post was around, hey, boys don't want to interact with girl stuff. Because again, you've got older men who are the target of Forza playing that. And you had the Jeep and it was just a car. It was really a nice looking car too. And if you can look at a business model, maybe there's a rarity scarcity model around that. Maybe there are ways for some of these zeitgeist brands to get into very traditionally male oriented products and, and find a way to ride the hype and ride the awareness. Because there were countless PR articles about that Forza Barbie integration, right? The Stumble Guys integration, like, that's why you do these things is to build that awareness with people who are like, Forza is still around? Really? I had no idea Forza 5 was out, right? Like, that's why you do this stuff. It's old school marketing. It's impressions. Yes. It's like, how yes. do I get you to know that the Barbie movie is out there and you can't escape it and you have to go this weekend? But I yeah, think you're right that, that these game integrations, one thing that I found with Club Penguin a lot is that people are able to play different gender roles and, in, and engage in different things in video games than they mm -hmm. will in the real world because yes. it's pure fantasy, right? Mm -hmm. And you have a lot of men who will play female characters. You have Absolutely. a lot of women who will play male characters. You have a lot of crossover in terms of the types of games that women play or men play. Yes, on percentage terms, they're probably stereotypical, but you probably have a sizable number of women who play a game like Forza, it may be small, but, but they're there. Right. And there, there's an sure. audience it's in all these games, but I also think it's just, it's like smart for everybody, right? It's not a huge act activation for Forza. It's, but it's unexpected. And I think that's yes. why it's for them and why it's a headline for everyone. It's look, Barbie's so big. It's even in Forza. And once it became clear that it was going to be a pop cultural success Every brand wanted to jump on that train just to get some of the shine, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But then you're also in danger of not standing out. And so there's a little bit of a mixed bag with that. But I, I think going back to some people don't know about what the marketing funnel is and how you move somebody through a marketing funnel. And this is would go into my debate club with my fellow cast members would be, okay, at the top of the funnel, imagine you have awareness. And then you have something that's like considerations. Would I actually go do this? Part of that too is education. Oh, Barbie is a little different. Oh, she has a Corvette that looks really cool and different. And then you keep moving down the, the funnel to trial, to engagement, to eventually monetization, if that is part of the product. And in, in, in the case of a movie, it's buying a ticket and going. In the case of a product, it's actually buying that virtual good. And then you can even go back through the funnel and, and re-engage 
depending on whatever it is. And so if you're a Forza, if you're another one of these games, you're hoping that you have um, brought somebody in at the top of that funnel with the hope of having people move all the way down, or you're trying to appeal to the audience that you already have in your funnel and saying, hey, look, this is something new and different. This is why seasons exist in Fortnite. This is why there's new IP integration all the time because your audience gets bored. Another reason why I left toys was they the attention span of a kid used to be like six months or a year they were into a brand. Now it's six weeks. Yeah. And they're like super into something for six weeks. Something new and shiny comes along, squirrel. And then they're off to the next brand. And so oh. I, as a marketer in toys, was having the hardest time figuring out how do you keep a kid in when they're not watching TV commercials anymore. Remember, it used to be for us in toys, we used to make a TV commercial and you could tell exactly what the lift off of your sales would be by the media spend that you would put into it. No more. Like it doesn't work mm -hmm. like that anymore. Mm -hmm. And I feel so bad for my toy industry friends who live off a world of streaming. You probably had this happen when a lot of the shows went to streaming. We went through all that at Universal because Universal was the biggest provider of animation to Netflix. And we had all these shows coming out and it was supposed to drive all these consumer products, didn't drive anything. Nope. And of course, the binge model was a big part of it. And we did all this work with Netflix to actually stunt different drops. So we would do yep. like a release of five episodes and then a quarter later do another release of five yep. episodes and try to create some kind of ongoing presence in the kid's life. Eventually, they they made it work with Gabby's Dollhouse. They found a model, but 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 there's a lot of shows that have gone on to Netflix that come and go in a weekend because of the bench model. They don't stay in the zeitgeist, yeah. right? Yeah, we were dealing with that when I was on at Mattel, and there was a car brand. I wasn't on it, but I was a, I sat next to that team, and it it was brutal because it was one of the first times everyone was so excited to pitch to retail. Oh my God, we're on Netflix. This is, and retail was like, awesome. This is awesome. And then once that bombed, retail was like, don't come to me with your fucking Netflix show. I don't want to hear it anymore. I still walk the toy aisles. My wife makes fun of me. She's like, you're not even in the toy industry anymore. I'm like, I can't help it. I have to Old go look. Die hard. Yeah. I have to just go see. And Thank God that these parents don't think I'm creepy. Luckily, I'm a woman, right? Because I'm like watching them talk to their kids about like, why do they want a certain toy and what's going on? And so it's, but when you go through and see what's on there is like the shelf space for a smaller brand. It's like, a, it's like pigs and that's it. Yeah. I don't even know how you make money anymore yeah. unless it's Amazon. I Like I've been out of it for, when did I leave Mattel? I left Mattel in 16. So it's been a little while since I haven't been keeping up with the business model. So you have a lot of experience in video games marketing. I posted yes. this the other day talking about my thoughts on go-to-market around video games because I keep getting questions as I go out to fundraise around go-to-market. And one of the things that I've observed is there was a lot of like voodoo and prestidigitation around user acquisition, the way people talk about it, it's we have, it's all, we know the algorithm and we have all this measurement and analytics and they throw out all this stuff. And I'm going to have my data scientist and, and, and it is analytical and there's math and there's all that, but it's not as mysterious as everyone makes it out. But I think they've convinced a lot of people that marketing is this unknowable thing. And 
I wanted to, to debunk that. And, and, and one of the other misnomers that I think is out there is that when it comes to marketing video games, that they're all the same in terms of how you market them. And that couldn't be less true, in my opinion. And one of the big points I made was around genre, that genre really dictates a lot about how you're going to market a video game. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. What are Absolutely. your observations in that sense? Yeah, your post was awesome. I think I, I commented on it. And I think we share a very similar mindset because you're a very, uh, I'd like to say you're a marketing friendly developer. And a lot of that has to do with your, and this is why I love the GM model and the games industry, because if you've got, you have to be a little bit of a unicorn who can talk to your developers, who can talk to your marketers and you see the business yeah. opportunity at the highest level. And, and, and luckily you have these unicorn capabilities that all come together. I'm not blowing smoke up your ass. Well, I think you're, you're, this is just a skill set that you have that it is very difficult for a lot of people to have. And so whenever I find a, mar a marketing friendly kind of developer or leader, I'm like, oh, please let me follow you around because you understand the value that I bring. And, and a lot of people on our podcast are starting to understand that it's one team, one dream, right? So yeah. that you cannot separate product and marketing anymore. Like that, no. I, if there's one thing I need people to understand, yeah. is it, it is in the world of life service, in the world of where we are today, it is integral that this comes together. I have so many people reach out to me and they're like, yeah, we're developing this game. We don't have any marketers. I'll call you when we're like four months from launch. And I'm like, I'm not going to be able to help you. That's not helpful. We have to be there from the beginning. You may not need me or anyone else full time, but unless you have the voice of the consumer and that person involved in the beginning, that's fine. Okay. So anyway, that's, let me start with that meta and then dive down. Absolutely. Every single genre, and I've worked on all of them, right? So I've worked, I did kids and family games with Hasbro. I did Farmville, which is 60 year old women in Iowa, right? That's a whole other different consumer segment. I did mid-core games all throughout Scopely, WWE, and Walking Dead, and Breaking Bad, and Star Trek, and Looney Tunes. And then, it, then I did PC Master Race. And that's how Riot thinks about itself is the hardest of the hardcore games. I was on League of Legends, for God's sake. Like, you don't get more hardcore than that game. And then I no. launched TFT. It's funny. People are like, oh, yeah, TFT's casual. And I'm like, can you stop saying that word? Because... This is not Candy Crush, everybody. TFT is not ca is not casual. It is a strategy game. It's an auto battler. It is not casual. Um, and then my startup, I was trying to do a little bit more casual again and, and hitting every different consumer segment. And every time you work on another one of the games, you really have to understand the motivations of the consumers are different. Where they're going to learn about information is different. The channels are different. The CPIs are different. All of it is different. And this is why... It is great if a developer is making a game and they are the audience. Awesome. That doesn't always happen though. I think I always tell my littlest pet shop story. I was working with, at EA, I was with a group of developers who had made The Godfather and they had made Tiger Woods and they were our littlest pet shop team making, which is little pets for little eight-year-old girls on the DS. And they were like, yeah, the pets are going to fight and they're going to go on missions. and They're going to kick ass. And I'm like, you are dumb because go talk to your eight-year-old daughter that is not what she wants to do. She wants to do hair play and nurture and dress up their pet. And we had to go do focus groups and they listened to the little girls. They're like, you were right, we were wrong. And so if you're not the consumer and you're a developer making a merge game and you're a dude and you play RPG, like you really need to invest in understanding what the consumer is all about. On your first point, genre does matter. Like you got to start there. 
and you got to start with competitive set. What type of media do they like? What kind of style? Art style matters. Theme and tone matters because brand marketing matters. My argument is no one developers are like, oh, I make a great game. They're just going to play it. I'm like, how do they play it if they don't know about it? Answer me that. That's why it's intertwined. Like I, if you make a great game, thank you. Cause it's so much easier for me to go out into the world and tell somebody about it. But if we don't have a hook, especially in today's TikTok world, remember that in an ad, you have 1.7 seconds to grab someone's attention. Mm-hmm. 1.7 seconds. So what is your game hook in 1.7 seconds? That's how we are a culture of ADD. And so if you don't start from the thesis of the premise of how can I communicate my gameplay very simplistically and in a way that's differentiated, there's 500,000 shooters. Thank God. I don't think you're making a shooter, right? No. No. I can't even imagine. And, and I know every day there's like X Battlefield, X Apex, X whatever guys are creating a new studio. The best thing I heard was there was a, gr- a bunch of dudes going to make games on, on Roblox or UEFN. I was like, that's fucking smart. That mm-hmm. is smart. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just had Pete Holly on the podcast who is 100 Thieves. He did the bank heist and he had some good observations in there. And uh, we know some other people who are who are doing that stuff. One of my bugaboos with the games industry is that there's an infinite amount of money chasing core games, especially shooters, MOBAs, yep. battle ah. royale games, right? And those are the most competitive. Yep. Those are genres where players are really invested into mm-hmm. the best games in that genre. And it's really hard to pull people away. Yes. And, that's why I'm so interested. You guys talked on the podcast on a deconstructor about Chrome Valley Customs and what oh, Space yeah. is doing, which I was convinced Chrome Valley Customs was not going to do well, but I guess it is doing well. And it, is it not? I actually think these guys are brilliant. I really have a lot of respect. They actually listened to the Deconstructor Fun Pod and they reached out and they were like, hey, you're a little bit tough on us. I don't mean to be. I'm just trying to tell you what I see, I always like people taking a different shot at a genre that is very crowded and yeah. you want to give it a different theme. And no one else owns that theme, right? The insight was let's customization is a big thing. Why don't we just have them customize cars? It's like the same as a house, right? And, and the cars aren't licensed and there's way too much dialogue in it because you're not telling me a story. If you're going to have dialogue, I really play Gossip Harbor or Eleven Pies or where they really look at a story-driven campaign that you're playing the main game so that you can follow along a cliffhanger-oriented story. But in in Chrome Valley Customs, they, it's just, it, it is superfluous. Yeah, you don't play you that know. game for the story. You play yeah. it for the cars. I know. Is I'm there like, racing? No, it's a match three game. And you earn enough stars, just like in Gossip Park or any of those other other games, so that you can upgrade parts of the car. And it it gets like pretty detailed of the parts of the car that you customize. But basically, it's the same as those other customization games where you have three choices. So you can like, so say you want to do, it's it's the wheel. You have three choices of wheel. And just the poor art teams for these games. You have to make three versions of every single car and... In some cases, no one's ever going to see the art that you created because it's what Dragon Age and all those games used to do, which were the branching tree stories. Like all of that content is made and there are going to be a player who's only going to ever enjoy 10% of the content created for the game. 
Like it's just such, such a crazy thing to think about. But why are you customizing your car just to customize them? There's like a light story. It's you're at a shop and you're a worker at a shop. And so you're earning stars yeah. to some a new client will come in and be like, hi, I'm going on a date and I want to take my wife out with this car. Can you update it for me? And then so you, yeah, it's like a level, right? That's not the core aspiration of, of Correct. cars. And so their point was, we want to go after men. And I'm like, cool. Okay. Interesting. Because puzzle play is not necess- is not just women. It skews female, but it's not yes. only female. So yes. you want to service that market. Okay. My argument to them was the way that they serviced that model still felt like it may have alienated some men. Like it just felt cartoony. It felt, and, and by the way, yeah. it felt very Disney Pixar Cars, which is a brand for three-year-olds. Yeah. And so it just... This is, I think, what I said on the podcast. And and I, I bet they looked at Pixar cars and were like, oh, yeah, boys like this. But it's, yeah, little boys like this. Yeah, but I'm also sure that they are tested it, right? The, these are veteran folks at all, yeah. a lot of these companies, and I'm sure they, they're all But this all is these what services. they don't understand about brand building and that whole approach of, yeah, so... We wanted to reach men, so we're going to do cars. It's not that simple. This is the thing that we're trying to do in toys. All we do in toys is make a piece of plastic, and it's the marketing, the storytelling around that piece of plastic that makes you want to have it, right? Because the story mm-hmm. is made up, the play is made up in your head. Yeah. And, and you know, what we were always, Tom McGrath beat us to death with <laughs> aspirational play. And it's something that I think in the game space is not very well understood because What's the point of a car game where I don't drive or race the cars? Like the core aspiration is to drive and race the cars, not just to fix them up. The reason that I'm fixing them up is so that I can race them. And if you look at the history of matching games that have worked with men, they tend to be puzzle battlers. And if you would take Mm -hmm. an SR and done a CSR match racing style game, (laughs) that I think would have, you know, is at least a decent premise. But, but it goes to the core aspiration and kind of motivations of the male players that you want, which is that they want something that's more competitive, where it feels like there's a some kind of competitive element, something where their mastery of how they build their car factors into the it factors into the result. You can't just look at these things as parts that you go out and A B test. And then Frankenstein them together. You're ultimately marketing to human beings. And you have to understand their aspirations, their fantasies, what they're trying to be and do through these games. And then build your premise around that, right? But you have it goes back to kind of first principles as a marketer. And I do feel that a lot of people in our space tend to think of marketing as like this frosting. You know what I mean? Oh, I believe me. I know what you mean. So in toys, marketing is the quarterback. Sorry to use an American football reference, but the toy industry is very marketing led yeah. in determining like what's your skew plan and, and what's our strategy and how we are going to go after this. The game industry is reversed, right? Where marketing is the tail of the dog, unfortunately, because it is very creative led. It is very developer led. And I am out there. And the reason why I really wanted to do the Deconstructor of Fun podcast was to help developers understand, again, that we can make your product better. We can 
as early as possible in how in you're developing the game, we can bring these insights. We can help yeah. you with understanding the audience. What are they motivated by? What do they need? There's a lot of great services. Like there's these Solston guys are great at helping figure this out. Or I use Game Refinery all the time to really understand motivations and archetypes. And, and then that shared language that we use with the team, even Quantric Foundry, I've used those in the past at Riot too. And I'm giving all these guys free marketing, but I want people to have services that they can go and look at and be like, oh, like maybe that I can use one of these services and it would be better. But th this shared language that you have with folks, developers and marketers like, hey, oh, this we're a king of the hill oriented archetype game. So what that means is every decision that we make about a new feature that we're going to put into the game, does that service this archetype? Does it service the motivations that go into that archetype? And you use it as a razor to then prioritize your feature set and how you're building the game. It's not exactly. And it's one of the factors, right? Obviously, you're going to look at all your other KPIs, retention, engagement, monetization, AEM, all throughout the acquisition, engagement, and monetization. That's an old EA acronym we would use for basically the funnel, right? Because in free-to-play gaming, you really have to think about the funnel. And so these were things that I love hearing you talk so deeply about understanding the aspirations of the player, because I think that is what most of the game industry just doesn't understand and doesn't really grasp. And it can be a, a way to save you so much time and so much time and bandwidth you put into things that you get wrong because you just, you didn't consider this up front. It's they understand it in games that they play and yes. are proficient, yes. right? Uh -huh. They understand it because they are those players. It's when they start getting into player archetypes that they don't understand mm -hmm. and they don't have the marketing skill set or the design skill set to go understand audiences that are not themselves and how to. It actually takes a lot of work. You know, like part of the reason I think I was able to be successful at running a girl's toy business was because before that I had worked at Frog Design where we had a real focus on research and understanding who mm -hmm. your audience was and insights. And during the time that I was at Frog, what they called generative research, which was really like getting in and talking to the customers as opposed to like surveys. Yeah, ethnography, um, you know, yes. stuff like that. Those tools were becoming really hot at the time. Mm -hmm. And so when I got into to toys and Mattel, of course, is one of the best in the world at bringing these kind of insights. I had the training of, okay, I understand I'm not a little girl and we're not making these for me. So I'm not using my judgment as a middle-aged guy I'm making my judgments based against research and mm -hmm. an understanding of who these kids are. Mm -hmm. and in a lot of cases, we had created profiles of those kids that had names for these theoretical kids and how mm -hmm. Susie going to think about this. Personas, yes. And personas. And, you know, that type of practice, I think, is less common in the games industry. Like, non-existent. Yeah. It, it, for many companies, right? And this is the case. And it's funny because this is how I'm able to, we were working on a Barbie game pitch and this is recently, right? And I sat down with the team and I told them, I'm like, listen to my own internal team. I'm like, here's my history with the brand. It doesn't mean that I'm not the best person in the world to help you understand what is best about this brand. And I took them through the history. I took them through, here's the order of the aspirations of what a little girl does. It is first about 
the role play. It is about aspirational play. And then it's about dress up, right? Then it's about empowerment. And I, I took them through all these things because a good marketer can be a good marketer on any brand. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter if you like it or not. And so that's what I try to tell people. But I was like, it's me, I'm honest and I'm authentic. So I, I want you to know before we enter this, that I'm not, a, I, I don't feel this brand. Some of you might feel this brand because it is much easier to be the target audience when not. But that's why these services that are out there, there are like all these companies now that can help developers and marketers get access to the data and you can plug it in and you can like really see it. Because going back to your LinkedIn post about go to market, what's super challenging right now is this, this, what we're talking about is the brand strategy, the audience insights and identification is more important than ever because performance marketing almost doesn't exist anymore right. because of the challenges with ATT and IDFA depre deprecation. We can't go in and say this human was in this game and has a ROAS of this and did exactly the, like you cannot sniper a whale anymore. You have to shotgun your audience. And what is shotgunning an audience? Oh, wait, that's old school marketing. And you old school market by what we're talking about. And now, so the, now, you it's all come really full circle. You think it's really that stark that the performance marketing is just, it's not dead, but it, it's it, certainly it is, not what it was. It's not what it was. It, it's old school. Like I, I go back to the world pre-mobile gaming yeah. and we're all in the same boat. And it's really funny because I talked to a bunch of my friends who are consultants who like me have grown up. I, I'm a bit of a unicorn as well, right? Like I had, I grew up as a product marketer, as a brand marketer, all these different things. And then I learned growth. I learned UA from my time at Scopely, who the best in the business at these types of things. And now the world is coming back to looking for people like me in my old job because they realize that you don't have the data set that we had just a few years ago. It's 10 year ago marketing. And so people are like, oh shit, we need to understand bigger media. And then you need the whole thing with TikTok and community. Let's dive into a little bit of community. I did a post inspired by you. So you did this post and you talked a lot and you're like, I think community was your secret weapon. And then, so two things happened. One is I signed up for a, an Ubisoft uh, Assassin's Creed beta for Codename Jade. And in that sign up, they're like, fill out this form and we'll tell you if you get in and the beta is going on and they didn't say anything to me. And so I did a rant and I was super pissed off because why would you treat your community like that? And so with Baldur's Gate, if you think back to Dungeons and Dragons, they had a really hard time in the year. I'm not sure if you're familiar with them. They were going to change the rules which mm -hmm. they have an open gaming license. They were changing the rules. And so the community revolted, like literally like on people almost quit. And so then the movie came out and then the movie didn't do that good. I was looking at all of this from a macro and I'm like, I have done so much with communities. Actually, one of my favorite things to do is to interact with the community. My very first job was doing Star Wars toys. And I think I was a community manager without knowing it. I went out and spoke to the community for all the toys. I would explain what's coming out. And so the community is the lifeblood of what we do every day, right? And this is what's so great about Riot is, you know, one of Riot's first values is player experience first. And so there's a bunch of like tips on how you can really engage with your community and have that play out because I, Chris and I argue about this. I'm like, I think community is like the new UA and he's, oh, but you're not going to get like mass kind of scale. And I'm like, you're right. You're right. That doesn't scale you. So maybe it's not UA, but it's a foundational principle. If you don't have good community, like you're, you're not going to win. 
I don't know, that, that seemed to be a little bit of, obviously it's a portfolio of channels that we deal with. Yes. Yeah. So I've been in the Web3 thing for a couple of years and been very involved in the build in public and a heavily community-based kind of model. Mm-hmm. Because that's Especially for Web3. Yeah. yeah Web3 is super that way. And there are pros and cons for sure. These communities can be really rough and to the degree of toxic. And yeah. um, it's funny, none of the people who are really good at community-based marketing are like Mr. Rogers. Like they're all a little cranky. And I did a lot of community-based marketing when I ran Club Penguin because mm. marketing to kids is actually very difficult because it's illegal <laughs> in so many different ways, the right? Quagmire, yeah. And, and anytime we could do something that kids could talk about and create their own virality that they could talk about on blogs, that they could talk about on YouTube, anytime we made YouTube community content, that was the stuff that was most effective marketing for us. Um, it was either that or buying ads on the Disney Channel. But what we found is that after a while, you burn out that audience yep. and you can't just keep going back to that well. And we lean very heavily on community to the extent that the Club Penguin community is still around today and they're still active on Twitter and they're still playing on pirate servers and all that kind of stuff. When I did all that, my character Spike hiked. I was very active on Twitter and very active in the community when that was like the best behaved version of me. And so now I'm trying to figure out as I go to do another community-based marketing thing, I'm like, all right, if I'm going to deal with these DGNs, you have to do a good combination of listening and empathy, even when it's hard. Yeah. With setting a tone. Yeah. I remember one time on Penguin, there was this girl that was constantly, her name was Sarah April, and she was constantly complaining about this and that on Club Penguin. She was one of the biggest bloggers. And she used to write terrible things about me. And all of my fans would go attack her on Twitter. And I had to jump on one day and I was like, whoa, like this isn't okay. And I used the dad voice and was like, hey, I'm really sad that I'm seeing all this in the Piglin community today because that's not why we're here. That's not what we're trying to do. I don't like everything Sarah April has to say, but that doesn't give you an excuse to be mean to her. Behavior completely changed. Yeah. And a lot of the time you have to understand that people are saying stuff half the time, not thinking anyone's really listening and they're venting kind of that part of their inner brain that probably shouldn't be expressed. But the second you give them the respect to respond to them at all, it now you're, as my shrink would say, you're in dialogue. Mm -hmm. And so so there's a lot of technique, I think, Mm -hmm. marketing thing that makes it tricky. But I do believe that it is the secret sauce now, because if performance marketing is dead or or not as effective, I, I also just look at it from the perspective of how much money do, do all of these mobile gaming companies especially give to Facebook and social media platforms? If you can find a way to incentivize your community and reward your community to do marketing for you, I would rather pay my fans than pay yeah. Facebook because it keeps mm-hmm. it in the family. But I think that it's going to be hard for, for me starting a new game from scratch, I can build my economic model around this idea, Right. Yeah, It's harder for these games that have built, and back to the point about genre and how decisions up funnel 
in the product development process impact your success. A lot of these games were built around the idea of performance marketing, meaning that the uh -huh. jobs were selected, the design of the games, the mechanics in them, how they monetize, all of that was based around the idea of being able to go whale hunting, right? Yeah, yeah. And in a world where you can't go whale hunting and you have to acquire users a different way, convert them in a different way at a different quality, I think a lot of these games start to break down. And that is what we're starting to see is that new acquisition is quite challenged with all of these changes in the model. And I think it's going to be hard for legacy games to adapt to this new idea. But what I'm betting my startup on is that there is a more kind of a synergistic model with your audience and with influencers that you can create around their sense of ownership in the game and using your audience as a force multiplier, right? Yeah, to, to, yeah. And I think that's the only tool that we have now. Well, ultimately it goes back to marketing is not a mystery. How do people find out about games now? They find out about them from trailers. They find out about them from TikTok. They find out about them from streamers, right? They find out about them from social media. They probably find out about them in the press. You know what the number one thing is? Every time I've ever done this survey, it's a friend of mine told me to play it. And that is almost always the, the number one way. Every time I did this at Riot, every time I did this at Scopely, word of mouth is number one. So how do you drive word of mouth? Like then, then you got to break it down, right? So at the time I used to do this, and I haven't done this test in a while because I've been at my startup. App Store Discovery used to be number two. If I had to guess, it's not even in the top eight no. anymore, no. like zero. Like no one finds a game looking at the app stores anymore, which no. is sad. So number three used to be UA. I saw an ad on social media is usually what people say for UA. And, and number four was an influencer, especially when I was at Riot, like influencers were a very big deal. And by the way, influencer and community, like, like they are, there's a Venn diagram with a very heavy overlap on those two things Yeah, because yeah. the influencers have a pretty big voice in the community, but the community is not always an influencer. And so that's what I also want right. to be like right. super clear about right. when I talk about like how you talk to these different people, right. they are one of the most vocal, but they're very specific. They have their have... own communities unless they're influencers yes. in your game. Yeah. Yeah. And so they can be very different. So these, all of these things matter. So what's interesting is anytime I get on a game team and I, they see growth somewhere in my part, they're like, okay, let's do a referral program. I have never seen a successful referral program in any game. Like it, it, it's something that you always see it, right? Like, give me your friend code. Cause you want to have a friend code. You want to invite your friend to play the game, but I would encourage everyone to think of that as an engagement and a retention mechanism to get you into the guild and to get your friends in. It is not generally the best like acquisition no. thing. No. And it's super sad because everyone's like, let's build this. And I've modeled it a hundred times. Do you have different success stories? Maybe you well, have one and I just don't. I think the reason that mechanic doesn't work with referrals is that there's no urgency around it. So for my game, we're going to do a code gated beta 
with an invite put program and that mechanic it worked for clubhouse which blew up it worked for facebook in the early days you had to be at a university that uh, that it was at you had to know someone to get invited so you know that velvet rope the fomo for people to want to get a friend code the thing works but the reason is that you're creating exclusivity around the experience Mm -hmm. right the problem mm-hmm. with a referral code in a free-to-play game that anybody can get into is why would I want a reward in a game that I don't play and I don't care about because I'm up the funnel, right? And just because my friend is playing it doesn't mean I want to play it. And that's not really how you decide to play a game is I get spammed by my friends. Like it did work in the early days of Facebook. In the early days, yeah, for sure. But it almost nearly destroyed Facebook as well. It wasn't like... If you hear a lot of marketers in our industry talk about it, their version of it was everything was great. And then Mark Zuckerberg, that dick, turned it off. The part of the story they're leaving out is that they started seeing a lot of churn because people were like, I'm tired of getting Farmville spam. The on cow. My, on my, on, yeah, yeah. On my Facebook. I so know. Yes. that's the part that I think that people forget. The community-based method, I think... The thing that I've come to believe is it's going to go hand in hand with this mega trend around UGC is really what's going to drive it. Because if you look at what Pete Hawley and 100 Thieves did with Fortnite, for a very low cost, they're able to create this map in Fortnite. They can earn back against it because they get paid as a percentage of engagement like every other creator on the platform. Because they're 100 Thieves, they have all these influencers. They can go onto YouTube and onto Twitch make all these videos, and then give out the map code for Fortnite. And they're able to use their audience to drive engagement in a game that's already installed on your console or your PC or whatever. That kind of model where the influencer is not just marketing, but where they're able to make gameplay for their community and engagement for their community, it's actually an extension of their brand, right? Because it's an activation within this game that everybody already plays, already has, and is already excited about. And the brand creator is able to make money off of it. I think that is going to be the new cycle, right? And I think what Cress and all those guys who I love with all my heart are missing though, is that Gen Z are very entrepreneurial. and, And there's a lot of ways to make money on the internet that they're growing up with. And some of them could, and some of them not so good. But they're increasingly like, if I'm interested in something, how do I make it my job? And I think that game makers that understand that and lean into that impact are going to be able to figure out how to pick the lock on community-based marketing because it's not, I make the game and then you go get a bunch of people to talk about it on Twitter. Yeah. The marketer. It's about thinking about mechanics, thinking about the rollout, all the things that you do around how you communicate what's coming up, the community engagement, everything you're doing, and, and also the economic incentives, right? That you give people. It, it's a holistic picture of how you use the community as a force multiplier. It's not just a marketing activation tactic. That's my theory anyway. Uh, You're 100% right. And this is why if you involve marketing and community, and by the way, community is its own skill set within the umbrella of publishing and marketing. 
one of the things now that I'm a consultant is what are my services? And so I have this page of every single service that's in publishing because I've touched all of it. And one of the areas that I put is comms, right? Comms is a bucket. Yeah. And where if I were to give you Riot secret sauce, it is the community management team there and the comms leaders. And so the comms leaders are these humans that are able to speak player and speak developer and bridge the gap. And so this guy, Blake, oh my God, he was like Edwards, like masterclass of a, of a comms guy could go and understand the player community, not just by reading Reddit, but like truly scrape the internet and get the vibe. Like, this is what's wrong. Let me articulate exactly what's wrong. Go to a developer and say, this is what they are looking for. And that's like on a live game, right? Like we did it on TFT or on League of Legends or any of those types of things. If you can do that early enough, then you can build the tools in place in the game that allow you to proactively play with that, right? If there's one thing that every game should think about is what creator tools can you put into your game from the right. start? Right. That will allow, because the love of a game is not just playing it, it's modding it. It's taking it and making your, it's fan fiction, guy. It's like fan fiction with a video game. If you can truly think about that, what early UGC tools can you give or create, not just like record your video and share it on, fuck, that is not what that is anymore. That is 20 years ago. Like it, it's no, um, change the map or change your character or all these different things. So that's what I think today's new secret sauce is. And if I were making a game as you are, maybe you should think about some of, you're in an interesting world. Cause, cause when you're, when you're web three, how do you think about UGC for a game that's web three? I don't know. I well, don't know enough about web three game development, to be honest with you, because I don't know enough. I don't know. Tell me, tell me what you can tell me without giving away too much. I think UGC is going to be very intuitive to the web three community. People in web three, they're not, they're not just passive players. They're very active they make memes. I think one of the things that, th that the Web3 guys have done quite well, actually, is really tap into the marketing power of memes. It's amazing what, I don't know if you follow Luca Nets, and, and he has a brand called Pudgy Penguins, which drafts off some of the nostalgia for Club Penguin. But, and he's actually driving his business, his NFT business through toys. He's getting into toys now. But he's really a master at how he markets to that audience. And one of the things that he realized was, what is social media really? What are all these things that are flying by on your feed? It's text, it's videos, although people are pretty selective about what videos they watch. And it's memes, right? It's a lot of memes. Mm -hmm. And so he went in and just really invested in creating Penguin memes and getting those memes into Giphy in trying to create uh, penguin memes that infiltrated like all the meme trends. So they're very on top of meme trends. And that brand is like taking off because people are seeing the memes, not even the NFTs, they're seeing the memes from Giphy and they're seeing them on, yeah. on Twitter and on Instagram and that kind of stuff. And that's starting to spread. And so it's just becoming this memetic internet brand. Um, but that's what I think the Web3 guys are like really good at is understanding what creates engagement on social media and how to make people a part of the marketing and make marketing part of the activity and the fun 
that's what I think some of the best brands in that space have really tapped into. Um, yeah, I'm on the website now. It's there's a meme generator. Like you're right. This is knowing your audience. This goes back to the beginning of our discussion, which is know your audience. What do they want to do? Give it to them, right? And craft your brand around it. When when you can give people what they want and you are benefiting from that, like to them, that is worth it. Like you are not a used car salesman. You are helping them. We brought it full circle. Thank you for you. We've gone over. You've been very generous with your time, but thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, you're so welcome. This is so much fun. Hi to your audience. And I wish you the best. I can't wait to see what you do with your Web3 thing. Let me know if you need help. This sounds fun. <laughs> I will. And if uh, people want to get a hold of you, how do they get a hold of you? Probably the best way is LinkedIn, Jen Donahoe, D-O-N-A-H-O-E or Jennifer Donahoe. And yeah, please connect because especially every week coming out of the Deconstructor of Fun podcast, I like to share actionable thoughts and insights. And Heather Lee, you do this too. As, as a thank you for your time and listening to all of this, I want you to come away with something that you can actually go and action on. As a listener of these things, that's what I want. And so hopefully coming out of this, there were nuggets that you can go and, and implement right now. So There definitely were. Thank you, Jen. You're quite welcome. Take care.